find out if you're ready for love. Here's your marvelous host, Nikki Lee. Hello, and welcome to Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Today, we've got we've got a friend of the show back with us, and we haven't talked to Lori Beth in ages, so it's awesome to have her, have her back. Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. Lori Beth, it's awesome to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. And, and you squeezed us in, in between packing and getting ready to move. So I'm Absolutely. very glad we get you in. <laughs> and in between all, all of our time changes, you know, on, on this side of the pond and that side of the pond, we we got you. And uh, because you're you're actually in London right now and about to move, but I'm I'm glad we yeah. get it worked out. So let me let me. You've been on the show before, but it's been a while. So let me kind of update the the listeners. Uh, Dr. Bisbee is a clinical psychologist, a sex and intimacy coach, an author, a speaker a podcast host currently based in London about to move. She's got more than 30 years of helping people create and sustain meaningful and exciting relationships. I love that. She specializes in GSRD. We're going to talk about that in detail today. And consensual non-monogamy kink BSD, BDSM knowledgeable and she helps traumatize people to move from victim to survivor and back into life. She is, oh, and I, I love this. I just found out when, when I was researching Get Ready for the Show that she has a TV show on Channel 4 uh, in London called Open House, The Great Sex Experiment. And like I said, she has a podcast called The A to Z of Sex. And she's a passionate speaker, a dynamic workshop facilitator, and a sought-after expert in the media on the topics of sex, sexuality, intimacy, relationships, and sexual trauma. She also has a variety of books. And actually, I've, I've interviewed you about a couple of those. Yeah. Including including Dancing the Edge of Surrender. And you've actually got a a book that goes with that now, don't you, that you, you did since I talked to you? Yeah, so that was my um, erotic memoir. And afterwards, I wrote a self-help book um, based on the skills that I learned having survived and working with people. Um, so the self-help book is Dancing the Edge to Reclaiming Your Life. Awesome. Awesome. All right. I Well, I noticed that. And I said, wait a second. That title is almost the same, but she did something different with it. So awesome. I love that. And, and I just, I love the title, Dancing to the Edge of Surrender. It's just so, so cool. Awesome. See, you, you just, you've always got something and you're always writing something and you just, I, you know, you do very cool stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Now I'm 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 usually writing something. I've got a couple of projects going on at the moment. What, isn't it one of these things that, that there's just always something compelling that needs to come out? <laughs> you know? so. I mean, so for me, yes, I, I, it's been this way though most of my life. Um, I I started writing um, creative writing when I was about uh, ten. And yeah. um, 
although I'm told by my mother that I did write some little things when I was six and seven and, and amusing things. I was writing protest slogans when I was six. Um, for context, when I was six, it was 1969. So, um, okay. <laughs> right, protest slogans were appropriate. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I, I properly started writing things when I was 12, and I never stopped. You know, that, that reminds me, when, when my first book, um, when, when I got a, a copy, a print copy of my first book, and it, it came in, I actually tracked down my second grade teacher so I could tell her because I knew that she'd be excited about it. And, and I found her, and I got her on the phone. And I told her, and, and her first words were, I knew you'd do it one day. So, <laughs> oh, that's really cool. So I, get, I can relate to that. It, it took some time. I knew she was here in town. I just I had to locate her. But, uh, yeah, so I, I understand that. <laughs> so, I don't think I was doing protest slogans, but she knew I was going to be a writer. So, <laughs> and I, I like, too, that, that you also I, – I had not heard – see PTSD until I was talking to you one day. And that's mm -hmm. complex post-traumatic stress disorder for people that have not heard that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I was listening to a couple of your interviews while I was getting ready for I had to, I needed, you've got so much going on, I needed to, like, refresh myself on all this. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm flattered. You know, you know, people tell me the same thing. They're like, it, it just, you just, you need to catch up. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh gracious! Well, let's let's start with GSRD because I want to I want to make sure we covered that. There's some other things I want to talk to you about too. Um, what is that? Now, people people <laughs> are familiar. People are familiar with LGBTQ, and there, it, it's it can be much longer. But let's stick with that because that I can remember. Right. People are familiar with that, but there's also a term, and I heard this when Susan and I were working on Am I Normal If? What is GSRD? So GSRD stands for Gender, Sex, and Relationship Diversity. And it is a, a term coined to describe, um, a, sort of to describe a therapeutic specialty. Um, and explain that a person who has expertise in GSRD works with people who are LGBTQ+, plus, um, works with people who are, um, who are relationship diverse. So those are people who, for example, might have um, uh, non-monogamous relationships, multiple relationships, works with people who are um, involved with kink and BDSM, and might be involved in power exchange relationships. So the term is to say, basically, all the groups that are outside your heteronormative monogamous relationships. So it's actually anybody that's not your one-on-one -on -one 2.5 kids. Yeah, anybody who's not straight, heterosexual, and monogamous falls right. into the GSRD category. It's so everybody else. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a really big portion of the population. Uh, yeah, more than people yeah. realize. I mean, uh, people yeah. 
people talk a lot about, I mean, I, it, it, social media, you end up in conversations with people. I've got somebody giving me a hard time at the moment uh, for suggesting that uh, monogamy is not actually the default all over the world. Um, what people don't realize is that although in the West, being heterosexual and being monogamous are um, considered the default, are more visible and, and the place where people usually fall first, that if you actually look at the world as a whole, that's not true. So that's, there are, I think that's assumed to be the default, mm. but... You know, if people are honest, that's not really, I mean, even even if you're just kind of experimenting and even just kind of light kink, which a lot of people do light kink and light mm -hmm. whatever, they still fall into this category, right? Yes. Yes, and I mean, this isn't to say that I never work with people who are heterosexual and monogamous. I do. Um, right. But, but, but I, because I specialize in this area, I work with a lot more people who don't fall into that standard category. Um, and, and there's a reason for that. I mean, there, there is actually a far larger proportion of the population than one might think. Um, right. And... People who don't know about alternatives, therapists who don't know about alternatives, can do quite a lot of damage when presented with people who are living what is considered an alternative lifestyle. Right, right. Makes sense. I, I, that's, wow. I just, I, you mean like marriage counselors, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, so there are some people who train in standard marriage counseling who are who have either gone to training that is very inclusive and diverse, because um, there is some of that in the world, not loads, but some, or have taken it upon themselves. Yeah, no, it's sad. I mean, it's still in a lot of psychology courses, um, clinical and counseling psychology courses, um, uh, there are sexuality classes that don't talk about anything other than heterosexuality and homosexuality, which is quite frightening, really, because there's such a wide variety of things. Um, but, and it's um, considered sexuality? Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I was in training, they talked about almost nothing. Um, so then some people have gone through a standard training where they didn't get much, but they've chosen on their own to go and seek additional training uh, that is out there on um, gender, sex, and relationship diversity so they can have a better understanding of uh, different gender presentations, different sexuality presentations, and the diverse nature of, of re the relationships that people form. Huh. Okay. Well, I mean, there's, there's so many more options now that are kind of being discussed but I mean, even even when I did my training like 12, 13 years ago, it was starting to open up more. Um, and thank goodness, I've I've got continuing access to more and more training as it's being mm. added. Um, with with Dr. Ava's uh, training, because I mean, she she continues to add things more and more, and of course, I've got access to everything. Um, but 
I, I can't imagine being in that field and not continuing to stay up on things. I mean, I do think it's hard. You know, I do think it's difficult for depending on what kind of a practitioner you are. Um, right. And and there's so much that I think it's hard. Um, a lot of you know, a lot of times people get trained in a particular method of working rather than in diverse methods of working. And sometimes, you know, the method hasn't kept up with the way the people presenting. But that's actually okay as long as you know what you don't know. And this is the thing. There are things that I don't have expertise in. I had a very varied training when I trained in the 80s. Um, and I've had a lot of continuing education. So I know a lot about a lot of things because um, I was lucky in, in having uh, a really comprehensive training. But I don't have expertise in everything, and I don't know about everything. And I do know the limits of my expertise. And right. so if somebody comes in to see me and they have an issue that is not something that is my best thing, or even it's not something that I feel like dealing with, right? Right. Because it's perfectly okay as, a, as a, a, a mental health practitioner of any type, and I consider coaches, counselors, all of us mental health practitioners, it's certainly okay to decide this type of problem and this type of client is not what I want to deal with. Right. And so, well, and you should do that. Like you should right. make sure that you know the kinds of things that you really enjoy working with and the kinds of things that actually you find really tedious because you're not going to be as good when you're working with somebody if it's something that makes that you find incredibly tedious. Well, and, and that's like I, I tell potential clients, and, and I say this on the show too, is, you know, the, the, first, the first appointment with somebody is a screening for both of us. You know, mm -hmm. is it a fit for them and is it a fit for me? You know, and if not, I know I, I like that I, I am in touch with and know so many other people that I can recommend, you know, you you might be a better fit with this person or this person or this person because this is something that they specialize in. You know. Yeah. So yeah, completely agree. And I think that's really important that people understand that. So um right. I know I know that this is an area that'll that you know, we don't have enough people that specialize in gender, sex, and relationship diversity at right. this point. There are far more people who are seeking out coaching or therapy or treatment um, of all sorts that fall into these categories um, than there are therapists. Right, right. Agreed. Well, and that's why it's so great that we, we all have this opportunity to get to know other people and to see what they do, to talk to them, to network with them, and, and say, you know, and then when we do come in contact with somebody, to say, you know, I, I know someone who is more qualified and has more experience with this, you know, and then be able to, to refer somebody to them. I mean, I've done that kind of stuff in all different businesses my whole life. Mm. You know, even when I was in school, because I, I, I knew such a diverse group of people that I've always been able to do that kind of thing, you know. So, yeah, I, I love networking for that very reason. But, yeah, uh, it's, might be it's really, 
it's really valuable. Yeah, it is. Well, and it makes you more valuable to other people because they say, you know, I I know that if I need something, this person can probably help me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I'm and I'm very careful who I recommend for something because I I know that's going to reflect on me. So you know, I make sure the person is qualified. Same same with when I bring guests on, I make sure that the people I I bring on do know what they're talking about. So, mm. you know, <clears throat> but. Because it reflects on me. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so, but um, yeah, I I like like I said that that the the whole the whole term and the whole idea of GSRD is if if we're being honest with ourselves, okay, it it is so much more inclusive just by the nature of all the sorts of people that it includes. I don't like things that are divisive, you know, that that puts all these people in all these little individual divided little groups. You know, I like things that bring people together, and it really feels, and that's what I thought when I first heard this and read a description of it. It just felt like it was it was bringing people together more than dividing them apart. I mean, I think, one of, I think one of the issues is that um, a term can start out being neutral, whatever the term is, can start right. out be, being neutral. Um, but over time, many terms become tainted. Um, and so, for example, um, the, the term mentally retarded was not a pejorative term. I mean, it, when, when it was first used... It was used to take the place of things like idiot, which was an actual category of, of um, learning issue, believe it or not. They used idiot and moron, right? Those were actual categories. Um, and so hmm. they, became, they became pejorative terms. And so um, the choice was made to use the term mentally retarded, meaning mentally slow. That's all it means. And there were right. categories, categories of mental retardation to take the place of idiot and moron, and there was one other I can't remember right now. Um, and so the term mental retardation was, it, it was what it said on the tin, mentally slow. No, no um, negativity associated with that term. But over the years, it became used as a pejorative, and so now it has this huge um, negative connotation, so it's um, not okay to use the term anymore. So right. uh, they, they moved from that to learning, disability, learning disabled. Um, the problem with that is that that used to be a specific category. So now you have no idea what skills a person has based on the label of group that they belong to. Um, and, and, and that can be problematic. Um, and it's the same with looking at things like uh, the various individual terms with LGBTQIA+. Plus, um, when you have um, controversy around these labels, then the labels eventually um, become problematic in and of themselves. I hope that that won't happen with gender, sex, and relationship diversity because it's a broad enough description and inclusive enough, but, um, but you never know because you, you look over time, people add their own interpretation to a term and then you have to start again and find a new one. Right, right. Well, it's just like I had I had heard um, neurodivergent, 
but the description that I heard was not really specific enough to give me a clear view of what it was. And I had that explained to me a couple of weeks ago by, by Kat, uh, Kate Osborne. I said, mm-hmm. okay, explain to me what this really is. <laughs> you know? so, and she did explain. I said, okay, that makes a whole lot more sense. But so, one, also, one also needs to realize that there's a difference between identities and description of conditions people might have or um, in the case of GSRD, their desires and the way they live their life, right? Okay. So um, if you look at the term neurodivergent, neurodivergent used to be a description of the way in which somebody thought, right? Now, okay. there are ne- now there are neurodivergent identities. Okay, such as? So um, now people use the term, they'll say I'm neurodivergent as, as an identity, not as a statement of an issue they have. There's a big difference, right? So people are, pr- are, are proud of their neurodivergent identity. Now, I don't have a problem with them, that they can be. But when you claim something as an identity, you usually don't want to change it. Even True. if it's problematic for you, even if it causes you issues, you usually don't want to change it. And people also look to the world to change their way of dealing with, you, with them because of their identity, rather than looking at how where are the places where they can fit in? Oh, that's interesting. So, um, and, and there's a whole bunch of stuff around identity politics that comes out of all, that, that this all becomes, right? Um, right. So, so when you, you're looking at LGBTQIA+, there are all, there's all, those are identities a lot of the time. Sometimes you can use it as a statement of fact, but, most people claim an identity. They claim, you know, I'm gay, I'm bisexual, I'm trans, I'm um, queer, right? They claim that right. as an identity. Whereas gender, sex, and relationship diversity is a description of a category someone falls into, not an identity. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Um, so if a person is using it as an identity, Identity does okay. How do I ask this? Um, is that more of an "this is who I am"? You need to just deal with me, kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. When we Got have core, when we have core identities, I mean. Okay, so, and this changes over time. There was a time where people would recognize their identity and look at the places where they were going to say to people, you just need to deal with this, and also look at the places where they could fit in with the wider, um, more normative group, right? So, okay. so sometimes they would try and, and um, find places of agreement, yeah? and places where they could blend in. And other times they would stand their ground and say, well, I'm different in this way, and so I I need you to recognize these things about me and treat me in this way because I am different, yeah? Um, Okay. And there's pride in an identity. Right. Like some people don't have pride in their identity, and that's usually quite sad, but so there's pride in an identity. 
but when you're okay. talking about, when you're talking about a descriptive category you're not claiming an identity there you're talking about um, somebody is presenting as part of a certain group and then the question isn't necessarily you know this is me you have to adjust to me the question in that case could be well what do I do about this right I'm not happy with this how do I get comfortable with this or I'd like to change this or I have or it's it's a description of a group and certain things go along with that group so for example okay. people people who are who fall into the GSRG group are more likely to be experiencing a certain amount of um, either discrimination or difficulty um, in the wider world as a result of the qualities that make them a member of that group. Okay. Now, isn't isn't it more? Because I mean, there's there's plenty of things about me that doesn't fit in with family and community and this sort of thing and over the years I've basically just gotten to the point where I need I I've told myself I need to learn to be comfortable with me as me they don't have to adjust if they're not okay with it that's their loss I, I don't expect everybody around me to adjust to me. I'm me, and that's that's me. You know, well, so, so I'm there's, okay with that. I mean, there's a couple of parts to something like that. So if you take something like um, being gay, for example. Okay. Right? So a person who's gay um, accepts himself and is happy with themselves. Okay. And they want the people in their world to accept them for who they are and be happy with okay. them. But the fact okay. that they're gay the fact that they're gay doesn't require a change in anybody else's behavior. Right. Well it shouldn't. Okay. Well it doesn't. Right? It doesn't. You don't have to do something specifically differently because somebody is gay. Right. So perhaps that's easier for people to adjust to because you only have to adjust your own viewpoint. You don't have to change your behavior because somebody's gay. Right. If somebody is neurodivergent, however, they may be asking you to change your behavior. Okay. And so that is more difficult. Well, let's see. I, I have family members who want me to change my behavior completely. Behavior, attitude, everything. And I'm like, no. <laughs> so. Yeah, but you don't. You don't need the, they, you don't, how do I put this? There's no special behavior that needs to, there's no special thing that a person who is not gay must do in order to be around a person who is gay, right? It's right, sexuality, right. it's nobody's business. But let's say somebody is, let's say somebody's neurodivergent, they might have difficulty with loud noises, okay? Right, right. Um, and so, it's not just about saying, this is who I am, accept me for who I am, right? Right. They may also say, and people who are around me need to not be loud, for example. Right. Because that's a problem for me. 
And so it requires more of the other person than right. does than does than do some identities. True. Um, and so, you know, it, it, the, the nice thing about GSRD is that because nobody's, you know, this is my identity, nobody's claiming it as an identity, it's, it's a descriptive category, um, it means that people can decide to look at it in a number of different ways. True. So, so when, I, and when I say that I'm working with GSRD people, I'm saying this is a safe place to be who you are if you fall into any of these groups. Well, and the thing is, too, if it comes to how you handle your relationships, that's something that you don't have to put right there in front of everybody else. I mean, you can, but you don't have to. True. I mean, so, and this is always a difficult one, right? Because why should I have to hide my relationships? because it would make you uncomfortable. Right. Yeah, I mean, so this is the whole thing about, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Right. Which, which applies to not only gay, but all sorts. I mean, it applies to everything that falls into the GSRD category. There are many heteronormative people who would prefer that it was all don't ask, don't tell. Right, like I wouldn't know it about you if you didn't tell me. Right, right. The problem with that is that if we're not talking about it, we're, often it means that within society, rights are being restricted. Because if you're not aware of difference, then how can you provide for difference? True. True. So, I mean, take, you take the example of gay marriage there, which is a, it's an easy, straightforward example, right? Um, so it, with don't ask, don't tell, then how do people make a lifetime commitment? True. You know, because that's something that's visual and seen in the community. How do people do that if you're saying, well, we don't want to know? True. This is true. Well, that's like like polyamorous people. You mm-hmm. You can actually be seen... But if you avoid, like, public displays of affection, people may kind of wonder, but they don't really know the chore kind of thing, you know. And and to a degree, that might be okay. Um, So I work with a lot of people who are are polyamorous, um, and um, one one of the questions, and I am myself, but one of the questions that often will come up for people is, you know, do I tell my family, right? When, right. Do, I, when do I tell my family? Um, and so um, and this is when people are non-monogamous, not just polyamorous. And so if they're, if they're non-monogamous um, and they don't have um, committed relationships with more than one person, like polyamorous people do, they're just having um, other sexual relationships and friendship and, and, and intimate friendships with people, yeah, then I'll right. say, well, what would, the, what would be the purpose of telling your family in that circumstance, right? If, if, sure. you're not, if you're not, you know, declaring your love for this other person, is there a reason that you want your parents to know that 
you guys go to swingers parties, right? Right. Right? You know, because this, this is part of your life and it's part of your identity. Why do you want your parents to know that? And some people will say, I simply want to be authentic, and I'll say, you know, fair enough, but let's look at the consequences of that authenticity and weigh right. it and say, okay, that's fair enough. What are the consequences of that authenticity? And then do you want those consequences, right? And then people make an informed choice. With polyamory, it's a bit different because um, if you love somebody, do you not want that love recognized? True. You do. I mean, that's why people get married, right? That's why people make public, that's why they make public commitments because they want the recognition of their wonderful relationship. So if you've got, if you have more than one relationship, then you may feel deeply that you want that to be recognized. Um, and, and also because it's awkward. It's awkward to have to like police your thoughts about who that person is. Also things like when people get ill, like, you know, if, if, um, if you're not openly uh, polyamorous, then it, you know, it may be that people wouldn't think to inform your other partner or your other partner wouldn't be seen as having any responsibility or other partners. Um, so in those cases, then it can be quite important to find a way to explain uh, your relationships to family and other people who are important to you and also to make sure that um, you very clearly have legal situations and legal documents that will allow for your other relationships. Right. So it really depends, right? It really depends on how important the, the acknowledgement is to you. True. Interesting. So many things to consider. All right. See, this is, it's always interesting to talk to you. <laughs> you come up with things I wouldn't have thought about. I like that. <laughs> I li- well, I like, I like having guests on that make me think about things I wouldn't have thought about because then after, after we finish, my mind is still reeling. <laughs> so this is good. This cool. is good. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Okay, so tell me, tell me about your TV show, Open, uh, Open House, The Great Sex Experiment. So the TV show is loosely based on an actual real retreat that I do with clients, um, which is one that helps couples who want to open their relationship up to other relationships, many different types of other relationships, so to consensual non-monogamy, to do that. And um, on the show, we have couples who have up to that point been monogamous, primarily, come in to the retreat. And I do some work with them about what it is that they want and the skills they need and the pitfalls there might be. And then there are residents at the retreat and we give them the opportunity to interact with the residents and perhaps make an arrangement so that whatever it is that they're wanting to do, they get the opportunity to try. Um, After their first night, they then come back for another session with me and we look at uh, how things went that night. Um, oftentimes, people hadn't considered certain emotional reactions, so we deal with whatever emotions have come up. And then they have another opportunity to um, 
meet one of their goals in the beginning of opening up. Um, and then we have a final session kind of pulling together what they've learned thus far um, and send them on their way. Interesting. So how many, how many shows are in the season? So the first season was six shows, and the second season will be eight. Um, okay. And, um, I mean, I, it was an absolute blast. It was a lot of fun. Um, it's, um, it is very graphic um, in parts. So, I was um, there, <laughs> Yeah, no, there, there is sex. You know, there is sex. There, you know, uh, people who have managed to go through with some of the things they want to try, you know, you see a lot. You see a lot. Um, and then in other parts, it, it's, it's quite emotional. Um, I am there for the emotional bit, not the other bit. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I never get what? to see what I, – I hear about what happened, but I don't see what happened until I see the show on television because I'm, okay. I'm, not, I'm not around for that bit. I would, I would figure there, there are a lot of unexpected emotions that come up for the participants. Absolutely. Um, and so for me, the reason that I um, wanted to do this was because um, it was a couple of things. One is to illustrate that actually there are other things out there than monogamy, right? Right. right. It, there are other things out there. We don't talk about them a lot. Um, it's an opportunity to give good information about what non-monogamy looks like. Um, okay. And the different kinds of non-monogamy, I end up, you know, Sometimes I end up talking about myths and, you know, debunking myths. Um, yes. But um, so that's one thing. But the other thing for me that I really wanted to do was to be able to highlight that this is not all about sex, even if that's the only thing that people want to do, right? Even if all they want is to open up so that they can have threesomes and things, right? It's never, right. It's never only about sex that, that – Choosing to do this because it is usually against everything people have been raised into has emotional consequences. Right. And so it's dealing with the feelings. And so in that way, it's quite cool because that part of it's relatable to monogamous couples, you know, single people. And, um, you know, after the first series, um, I had obviously people who wanted to open their relationships up seeking out my advice, but I also had people who were, you know, in conventional marriages seeking out my advice because they related to some of the emotional stuff that came up and the disagreements that came up. So um, you don't have to be non-monogamous to kind of understand the emotions and things that come up. Right. I would think so. And I get the opportunity to really highlight to people that relationships take a couple of things. One is they take skills and that many people don't have the skills because we don't get taught the skills. But skills can be learned and practiced. So that's a positive thing is that, you know, you can learn the skills even if you don't have them. And relationships take work. Yes. So do you... At the beginning, do you have a conversation with the couple to prepare? Yes. So that's the first session. The first session, I'm, 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 I have a conversation with them, one, to identify any potential areas of difficulty and to prepare right. them 
you know, and to prepare them for how they might feel or how they might react, um, to help them figure out exactly what it is they actually want. Right. Interesting. That does, uh, that seems like it would definitely be interesting. <laughs> it is. It's, I mean, you know, it's a really interesting show. Um, you know, and it's got, you know, a lot of entertainment. So, you know, it isn't just like, it's not a dry documentary. It's got a lot of entertainment. If they call it edutainment these days. Um, yes. And um, <laughs> so it's got, you know, the, the parts of it have a bit of a reality show feel, but nobody's being voted off, you know. Nobody, you know, right. there's none of that. And none of it's scripted. So, um, yeah, no, there isn't, there's not a single scripted part to the show. Um, so there are places where we might ask the same question to every person, right? But well, there's no, yeah, but there's no script, there's no scripted responses. Um, I don't know what I'm going to say until I'm sitting in front of the couple. Um, I don't know how any of it's going to come out, nor do they. Um, so it's great from that point of view. It's a, to me, it's exciting and a lot of fun to do. But I also think that makes it more interesting to watch. Interesting. I like it. Well, like I said, you, you need to get it syndicated over here, too. So Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think one of the problems in, in getting it um, seen in America is that um, the, the standards in Britain as to what amount of sex can be shown and the standards in America are very different. Oh, I know. So, that, well, that's, that's why I, I like BBC stuff so much better than I like what we have over here. I mean, it may be, it, uh, either it'll get syndicated somewhere in America, but it'll probably be on cable or Netflix or something like that because, yeah, oh. because it, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of sex. <laughs> well, I would, you know, but the, the nature of what you're doing, there should be a lot of sex. So. Yeah, like the show is about sex, right? The show is absolutely about sex. That's why there's a lot of sex. <laughs> well, if there's not, you're doing something wrong. So. Yeah, and 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 but at the same time, the show is also about relationships. So I yeah. really love I really love the fact that it, it's about both, um, and yeah. it hits both. Well, and you're showing that there there are emotions involved. It's not just about sex, and there's communication necessary to to you know get through everything. So I you know. Sounds like you're accomplishing what you need to. So yeah, I mean the reality is the reality is for most people that even casual sex brings up feelings. You may not act on those feelings. You know, you may you may just go, oh, that's a feeling, but I'm not going to make it into a relationship, right? But right. Um, but for many people, being physically intimate with someone brings about feelings, and so it's important to be able to acknowledge that. Right. Well, the thing is, though, you're you're educating the public while they're being entertained, which mm -hmm. is it's a good thing. So, you know, that's that's very positive. So, this is good. This is very good. So, yeah, I think so. I'm I'm really enjoying it. Now, I I thoroughly enjoyed your interview that you did on uh, Crazy Train. I believe was the name of the show. Yep. That was that was a very entertaining very entertaining interview. Um I was I was very disturbed when she was talking about her her therapist she was going to being judgmental. That was not good. Yeah. And I was like, Yeah, no, that wasn't oh. good at all. 
I said, call, call her when you're done with the interview. <laughs> so, I hope she called you. <laughs> so, um, and y'all were talking about gaslighting. And, mm-hmm. and we, we've, we've only got a few minutes, but um, can, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think, I think there's more gaslighting going on, and that was, that was a whole movie too, actually. Um, mm. can, can you talk a little bit about gaslighting, what it is, and how people would know if that's going on? So in really basic terms, gaslighting is when somebody tries to convince you of their reality um, and convince you of their interpretation of things and in the process makes you feel crazy. So um, a, an easy example of gaslighting is a kid says to their parent, you know, um, I feel uncomfortable when auntie so-and-so I don't want to kiss auntie so-and-so because it makes me feel uncomfortable or because they're, you know, they smell bad or whatever, right? And the parent goes, oh, don't be silly. Oh, don't be silly. They love you. Go kiss them. Oh, don't be silly. It's not a big deal if you don't feel that. That's gaslighting. The child or the parent? The parent is doing the gaslighting of the child. Okay. If just, I just say, right, right. If I say, if I say to somebody, this, you know, this doesn't feel okay to me. This makes me uncomfortable. Or, um, and you see it in, in in relationships where it's, you know, somebody is um, really um, derisive and putting their partner down, and the partner says, you know, that does it. You know, it doesn't feel good when you put me down like that, um, and. The partner might say, oh, I wasn't putting you down. You misinterpreted it. You didn't hear what I said. You know, it's in your head. This, this is your, in your head that you're feeling this way. And if they do it well enough and talk well enough, the person begins to believe that other person's worldview. And it's, and it's done in an attempt to manipulate and take control. Right, being very dismissive and, oh, it's all in your head. You're just imagining it. It's not really happening. Mm-hmm. And when it's done enough, you start to believe what they're telling you. And think, That's right. Maybe, and Maybe I'm not really seeing this or hearing this or it's right. not really happening. People talk themselves out of their own um, perceptions, their own observations, their own feelings. And their own reality. And the book that I wrote, the self-help book that I wrote, um, the the second part of the title is um, Essential Skills for Gaslighting and Trauma Survivors. One of the worst things that you can do to a child is gaslight them. Because then they don't know how to trust their own gut. Because they've learned to believe your view of reality and rely on you a view of reality and so they don't know how to create their own and pay attention to what they are um, perceiving and observing and feeling and make a determination and that puts them at risk in the world yes well the thing is their their intuition and their gut is telling them things 
and we we need to listen to that and the thing is if if you're telling them it's not really true that that instinct isn't being developed and yeah. we need it <clears throat> absolutely um and so gaslighting is incredibly abusive some gaslighting is not deliberate um so it's not malicious manipulation but it's still gaslighting but a lot of gaslighting is definitely manipulation yeah some is well and i think i think parents do that kind of thing in a family gathering especially you know when when everybody's around and and you've got everybody there and and kind of push you to whatever relatives without even thinking about it a lot of times but how can how can parents and grandparents maybe be more aware of that kind of situation if if say children and grandchildren are are saying that kind of thing is is there a way that that they can be more aware and not do that to the kids it's actually really simple um what you do is you accept the child's boundary period there you go right children have a right to their bodily autonomy um and with the exception of things like you know you can't leave a child in a dirty nappy um and um you you can't have a child refusing medical exams yeah you know right if they need treatment um if they're ill and they need treatment then they're just going to have to deal with it other than that you let the child set boundaries child set you know if they're not going to be in danger you let them set boundaries children um children's desire for privacy develops at different ages with different children um children's ability to look after themselves clean themselves without help etc develops at different ages in different children um and the way that we help children to develop a really good um sense of themselves and their own autonomy and a really good strong um connection to their intuition and is is by allowing them to set a boundary very true well and if if they are hesitant around to to be alone with a specific person then spend time with them and that person and watch them watch their interactions see if something's going on with them and you can do that but the reality is i mean for me the bottom line is um i what i the bottom line is regardless of whether you see something or not you still go with their gut yeah right so you may spend time around um them and uncle bob and you don't see anything untoward but the child is still uncomfortable that allow the child the right to say i still don't want to be alone with this person well i was thinking like if it's a doctor or something like that yeah i know it's just like you're there yeah absolutely but i but i think in general what happens is people are looking to see if as an adult they can see the uh the thing that the child is reporting 
Right. And, and sometimes they can't. It's just the child's feeling, and the child doesn't have to prove anything. Because all you're teaching them is that they have the right to set a boundary. That's all. Right? I have a well, right and, to decide who can touch me and who cannot touch me. Yeah. Well, a lot of adults don't know how to do that. So, you know, Absolutely. if, some, Absolutely. if, some, if a child's doing it young, encourage it. <laughs> so. But, I mean, that's, how, that's, how, that's a pr- protection against gaslighting is allowing your, and, and in, even inadvertent gaslighting, it's teaching your child to check in with themselves, to know their own mind, to know their own feelings, and to express it. Yes. Yes. Great practice. Great practice. All right, so where, uh, you're working on a new book too, aren't you? Yeah, I'm working on two things at the moment. I've just started working on um, um, something to go with the series. And um, I'm also working on a book on um, managing relationships where one person is monogamous and the other person is non-monogamous. Okay. And it is possible, I hear, too, right? It is. It um, it (laughs) takes more. It is. It takes more work, and that's why I'm doing this book, because it does take more work. Um, and so the book's got a lot of practical stuff in it to help okay. figure out wh- whether this is going to work for you and to help make it manageable. Okay. I, I would expect you to, to have lots of tips and suggestions and examples and all that good stuff. Yep, and also exercises so that people can, you know, check all that out. Awesome. See? See, I knew she would. (laughs) All right. Do you want to give your website address? Yep. It's DrLaurieBethBisbee.com. Very easy. Straightforward. (laughs) See, I like it when people have easy websites. This is good. When I started out, I didn't. And then I just got fed up and decided it was much easier to just use my name. So everything is under my name. See, there we go. Make it easy for people to find you. I used to have authors that, that I, would, I would promote, and, and they would hide their contact information. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And as always, you had lots of good information. My pleasure. Well, see there. And, of course, when your new book is out, let me know if you would like to share information about that because I know that will be valuable also. We do. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. And listeners, I'll be with you next time on Ready for Love Radio. 